for me, good garbage is no such thing as waste. You know, a full circular model where nothing goes to waste, everything gets reused in some form uh, and ends up being something else. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Good Garbage Podcast. My name is Veth Krishna. My primary reason for existence has been to find ways to leave our wonderful planet cleaner. We will be speaking with material innovators, creators and propagators to learn from them how we can build for scale and towards a regenerative future. Their stories will help us answer the big question, what is good garbage? Hello, hello. This is a very different conversation from the ones before, as Will Ghali, the CEO of EcoSurety, is truly an evangelist in the sustainability space and comes with vast and deep experience working with brands and marketing in large organizations like PepsiCo, Unilever, Cobra Beer, Pakati, etc., etc., etc. Will and I met last year at Rethinking Materials, and I was immediately influenced by his clarity of thought and understanding of the space. This conversation is wide-ranging, and we cover aspects around needs for the brands, their challenges, impact that policy has in the space, and issues like recycling and composting. I'm sure this will be a very valuable conversation for a holistic understanding of this domain and its evolution that's going to come in the in the coming times. I look forward to your comments. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, hello. Today we have Will Ghali, the Chief Executive Officer of EcoSurety. Uh, Will, I've been thinking about how to kind of introduce you. And the best term I came up with was an evangelist. Uh, you are helping companies ensure that they are following regulations, but you do way beyond that. You know, we've had a one conversation before, and what I saw was that you can be a force to reckon with when it comes to different brands. You've had this career of working with numerous big, big brands and promoting them, branding and marketing. And I think it's just such a such a boon for the industry to have a person like you kind of uh, putting the cause ahead uh, for these brands. So, first of all, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for taking the time. You're very welcome, and thank you for the uh, for the introduction. Uh, yeah, I mean, do you want me to talk about eco surety and what what eco surety is, or shall I just let you ask the questions and I'll? Not yet, okay. not yet. We'll we'll okay. get there. Okay. We'll get there slowly. Okay. <laughs> but we do want to start with Will, the person, because I don't know that much about you. So tell me more about your growing up and you know how your growing up years influenced you because you clearly work in the domain of serving the planet in a significant way. So were there incidences while you were growing up that impacted your life and the way it turned out as of today? Okay, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, and maybe it'll it'll uh, it'll unfold in the conversation. I mean, I uh, the 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 name Gali is Egyptian, so my father's Egyptian, uh, my mother's English. I grew up in in Egypt in Cairo uh, until I was 15, and then I I uh, came to England, finished off my education here, and uh, uh, went to university, did a business degree, and then started working for Unilever. So I suppose in terms of what I do now working for a sort of a values-led purpose-driven business trying to help them with their recycling obligations and helping businesses to make more sustainable decisions it could be because i worked for 20 odd years for 
big multinationals, the likes of Unilever, Ricketts, PepsiCo, etc., producing lots of packaging. I was in a marketing function for most of my career, um, and I, I, you know, developing brands, building brands, and developing packaging, which ultimately, you know, can if it's not you if it's not disposed of properly and collected properly as waste, it ends up littering the you know the world. So I suppose I'm atoning for my sins. Uh, <laughs> having worked for the big corporates and now I'm helping these corporates accelerate change towards a more environmentally sustainable world, which is the purpose of, of eco-surety, which is closely aligned with my purpose in terms of uh, helping, you know, helping businesses to make good decisions. Make sense? So what, what was that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And what was that moment? You know, I, I agree, you know, you've worked with some really large companies and you've been at the forefront front of branding, marketing, and I agree with you, it must have taken a lot of packaging for that as well. But there must have been a certain time. Is there a particular time or was it a gradual transition to thinking that you want to do something different? How did that change start to occur in your life? I guess, you know, I spent 20 years in marketing. It's a long career in marketing, 10 years as a marketing director. And I guess I felt I wanted to make a bigger impact on organizations than than just within the marketing silo. Um, so I suppose I my career sort of shifted in about 2011, 2012. Um, so what's that, 11, 12 years ago, um, from marketing into broader commercial role into a strategy role initially, and then chief operating officer to try and influence the organization that I worked for at a broader level beyond just the pure silo of marketing. And then having worked in primarily FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods, for 30-odd years, and I felt it was about time to, to move into something else, something different, um, to continue learning and growing as an individual, but also to see, well, actually, how can I use that experience of understanding how the PepsiCo's Unilevers of this world operate to help them make better choices. But I don't think, so I think it was a gradual transition as opposed to kind of one particular moment, you know, I was walking down the street and this thing hit me. <laughs> uh, it wasn't like that. It wasn't a, a specific incident or a moment that made me think, right, I have to change. It was, a, I guess, a gradual transition. And I suppose it's also thinking about... Yeah, so it wasn't like an aha, satori, satori no, moment. No. And it was just a kind of how do I, how do I continue to, to learn and develop um, and how do I use my skills and experience um, to best effect. But you could have gone in any direction. Like when I look at the richness of your experience and knowledge, it's, it's, it's big. Like, you know, you've worked with Unilever, Kraft, Wreckin Pickinser, Danone, PepsiCo, Cobra, Clark, you know, these things are huge, mm. Will. So, so, you know, you could have obviously continued in that trajectory of uh, building brands. And you could, have, you could have maybe also done more sustainable-based, maybe there was a realization that you need to do something in sustainability, but there's lots of people today who do sustainability-based businesses, marketing and, and communication. So why take a different direction from marketing and brand and get into something which is more kind of uh, impactful in terms of getting getting the brands to adhere to a certain principle? Uh, I suppose it, it's still working with brands. So our, our clients are brands. Some of our, I'm fortunate uh, within EcoSurity that we still have some of the brands that uh, that are our clients at, uh, 
Adico Surety are companies I've worked for. So Pucker being a great example, Pucker Organic Herbal Teas. Uh, you know, they're one of our clients and we've now won the Ecoterra business, which is all of Unilever's former tea brands are now into an entity called Ecoterra and they've just relaunched it now, I think, as Lipton Drinks globally or Lipton Drinks something. But basically it's Unilever's former tea brand. So Unilever has exited tea. They're one of our clients. So I suppose I continue to work with brands, which is my comfort zone, I suppose, in terms of understanding how brands operate and how, how to talk to the owners of brands and try and understand what they're trying to achieve. So it's important to understand your customers. So I feel like I understand our customer base at, at EcoSurity. And then I suppose I... I was just interested in this opportunity. I met the founder, Steve. Um, I, I met the team, the senior leadership team, and I thought, actually, this is a good, good bunch of people doing good stuff, and I think I can make a difference. Hence, you know, hence the decision to to join the business and uh, and run it three years ago. Now that's wonderful. Uh, but tell me more about you know you have this broad array of different brands that you've worked with and been deeply involved with. In terms of packaging, what were your learnings uh, from that? And of course, I guess you've gathered more learnings in the in the previous three years uh, in terms of dealing with the brands from the outside. But give us a perspective of, you know, how do they look at packaging and how is the landscape transforming as you see it? I guess we're in a fortunate position, you know, now and over the next few years where governments and the UK, we're primarily a UK business, so the UK government is introducing new legislation and more and more legislation over the next few years to basically apply the, the polluter pays principle. So if you are a polluter and you produce lots of packaging and that packaging ends up as waste, you need to pay for that waste. So you need to almost have a moral responsibility, if I can call it that, for where that waste ends up and, and what happens to it. And hopefully for it to not be waste and almost where we're moving fair to an era where the industry doesn't even think of it as waste but they just thinks of it as resources and these resources have value and those resources remain in circulation and therefore how can we switch from a, a linear model of the economy to a circular model where these resources get captured they have a value and they remain in circulation for a long time so that's the so you've got that the the government legislation sh shifting or uh, drifting towards a, a, a position over time where uh, behaving in a non-sustainable way, i.e. using either non-recyclable packaging or making sure that you're... Um, there's two things. Using packaging that is that hasn't been recycled, so not using recycled content and producing packaging that isn't recyclable will cost you a lot as a producer. So you need to you have a financial incentive and, and even a legal requirement uh, to ensure that your packaging is has recycled content and is recyclable. Um, and therefore, that's an opportunity for us to help brands accelerate along that path and start to, um, to ensure that they are making better packaging decisions using more recycled content, making sure their packaging is more recyclable. And I guess the next thing or the next frontier beyond that is how can we uh, reduce our reliance on packaging altogether? And can we move to a model where single use packaging um, is no longer required and people start to use uh, a refill and reuse model where the packaging is, a, you know, a container like this 
glass of water that I can refill endlessly and keep putting in the dishwasher and therefore I don't need to have packaging around it. Now, in a consumer goods world where things have to go through a supply chain, end up on a supermarket shelf, etc., there will probably be a, a finite life for that packaging and it may be a, a, a reusable glass bottle uh, has 50 cycles. So it goes through the system 50 times and at the end it does need to be recycled and you know a new glass bottle gets created and then that goes around the system 50 times. Um, but, you know, I know with your, your business, Ved Packer, uh, you know, that is about resources and using you know, a waste, uh, you know, sugarcane uh, residue as a waste product and turning that into packaging. And therefore, that is a circular use and it's a sustainable use. So I suppose for me, that's the interesting bit is how can we think smart, use resources more effectively, um, lower the carbon footprint of these you know products. So you imagine a, a glass bottle of, you know, Beer, for example, any any brand, I won't name a brand, but the fact that that's a single-use bottle that gets drunk in 20 minutes and then it becomes waste, you know, and the, the resources required in terms of melting that glass, recycling it, creating it from scratch, you know, surely there must be a more resource-efficient and carbon-efficient way of consumers consuming products. So I suppose that's the exciting bit for me is kind of it's it's allowing consumers to still enjoy the products that they've enjoyed but doing it in a way that is just as convenient as it always has been but is more resource efficient and there's so much to unpack in all that you've said and hopefully you know as we go along we'll unpack all of those <laughs> you've talked about process you've talked about the actual packaging you've talked about reuse you've talked about different substrates within that conversation so you've actually put out a lot out there and i'll slowly be unpacking those ideas but just before i get into eco surety and what you do to to be able to introduce to the listeners uh, what what eco surety is i wanted to ask you one more question on the brand side are you seeing brands look at it as an opportunity to kind of make a difference or are you looking at it you know like you said in terms of regulation or are they looking at it as pressure and they have to do it or is it a mix of both? How are you seeing brands perceive the current situation? And of course, cost is another factor that comes in with that. Yeah, it's a mix of all. It's a mix of all of these things. So, you know, um, these brands are big multinational commercial organizations. And therefore, whatever they do has to be commercially viable. Um, the good news is that regulations are pushing them in a certain direction, which means they have to do it. Um, Consumers are pushing them or pulling them maybe in a certain direction because the consumer demand is there with a new cohort of consumers that want to buy responsible brands. So there's a consumer, the consumer demand or consumer expectations are shifting. Um, the employment base is shifting. So the employees of the Pepsis and Cokes and Unilevers and Procter and Gamble's of this world, you know, their their staff are shifting. They, you know, there's the the young cohort of consumers have different expectations and they want to be working for a business that is an ethical business and behaves responsibly, etc. Uh, and the stakeholders, the shareholders who invest in those companies who own the shares, uh, want to own shares in a company that you know ticks the ESG boxes, uh, i.e. is behaving responsibly and meets various ESG criteria, including you know being a B Corp like EcoSurity, etc. So, so there are lots of factors. There's the the shareholder commercial angle. There's the employee angle. 
there's the consumer pull and then there's the regulatory push. So you've got these push and pull forces that are driving the organization slowly in that direction. And I genuinely believe that some of these big companies or most of these big companies are not going down this path sort of kicking and screaming and resisting it. Um, they are sensible, pragmatic, you know, commercial, smart people. Uh, and they think, well, this is the way forward. In order for us to succeed in the long term, this is how we now need to behave. So that's why they're behaving in this way. So it's uh, it's not altruistic. It is smart commercial um, decisions. So there is there is definitely hope from all that you say. You know, I didn't think of. I actually didn't hadn't thought about the uh, staff or the employee angle. But you're right because ultimately we are all part of this whole kind of movement and of course one of us is working with them and I'm sure they want to work for a company that is more aligned to the way they think as citizens of this planet. Absolutely and you know we, as you said we are all citizens of this planet and we turn the news on and you watch you know wildfires and, and flooding and different weather patterns and rivers being polluted with uh, with waste and plastic in the oceans etc so we all live on the same planet and we all watch the same news and people think well what can we do about it how can we make a difference um, and still be commercially viable that's the thing is and i think there are um, because you've got the, the consumer pull and the regulatory push um, i think that that makes it easier almost for these uh, businesses to behave in a in a uh, in a responsible and sustainable way as I promised, let's switch to EcoSurety and then come back and start unpacking more. So, so tell me more about, one, your kind of attraction. You said three years back you met the founders. So tell us more about why you got attracted to this option. And then, of course, you know, why was this founded uh, in terms of the founders? And then uh, what does EcoSurety do? So maybe three parts to the question. Let me start with uh, with what EcoSurety does. Yeah, so in reverse order almost. So we're a, we're a values led, purpose driven business. Uh, we became a B Corp in 2020. A B Corp is a, is an organisation that uh, that balances purpose with profit. So it's a third party accreditation that says you are balancing purpose with profit, and you are you care about the the environment, you care about the employees, and you care about the context within which you operate. In terms of what we do, we deliver regulatory compliance uh, and packaging recycling consultancy services. So our clients in the UK are the big brands, uh, big retail brands, a lot of food and drink, some of the brands I mentioned, uh, and some of the big retailers as well. And we look after their, their recycling obligations, so we make sure that they meet the uh, the regulatory obligations in terms of the the percentage of the packaging they place on the market by tonnage, so whether it's cardboard, plastic, aluminium, steel, etc., has to be recycled. We calculate for them uh, how much recycling needs to take place on their behalf, and then we go to the recyclers and we buy evidence of that recycling. So we buy something called um, PRNs, packaging recovery notes. Each PRN is evidence that one ton of packaging has been recycled. So a packaging PRN is evidence that one ton of, uh, sorry, plastic PRN is one ton of, of plastic has been recycled and we buy that evidence and then we earmark it as, a, as it were to one of our clients um, to say, 
they've met their regulatory obligation. We go way beyond compliance uh, to make sure that the, the recycling that um, takes place uh, is audited um, and is high quality recycling and is as efficient as possible. Uh, and we help them make steps towards you know, this circular economy model that I talked about. So we're running some pilots for our clients around um, reuse and refill as an alternative to single-use packaging. Three years back, you said you joined them and there was something that called out to you. So what was that? Um, I think, it, I mean, it was it was meeting the, the founder, Steve Clark, um, and the, the previous CEO who handed over to me, James Piper, uh, and then meeting the management team at EcoSurity and just understanding a what the business does did and then the and the potential for helping more brands in the future and just expanding this offer um, and and developing a team and I suppose for me it was also about me playing to my strengths uh, and I suppose my strengths as a as a leader in business uh, are around strategy and people so I guess what I've done. And over the years, what I've learned, I'm good at, I suppose, we can't all be good at everything. You know, the areas of particular strength that I've enjoyed and I focus my, my efforts and attention on are, are people and managing people and getting people to be focused on a clear objective and making sure that the whole organisation is sort of pulling in the same direction and is heading towards a, a clear purpose and a clear goal and a clear strategy. And that is you know, well thought through and, and widely understood within the business. So strategy was one thing I've always enjoyed and, and this opportunity allowed me to to, to, to focus on strategy and, and play to that strength and then people making sure that we've got the right people in the right places and allowing people to play to their strengths and this is something that I actually learned at Clark's or Clark's had a big focus on that where uh, for Clark's it was very much about allowing people to play to their strengths and understanding the importance between the employee and the line manager. So, you know, you, and again, I've learned this over the years that you don't work for companies, you work for people. And when you leave a company, you usually leave because you've left your boss. You don't get on with your boss, so that's why you leave. Uh, and if we can establish close collaborative relationships between individuals and their line managers, then you will create a good culture and a good environment. And an environment where there is a, a you know, people demonstrate a genuine concern for others. So if I, if I can demonstrate to my team that I have a genuine concern for their welfare and they can demonstrate that they have a genuine concern for the welfare of their teams, then you'll create an environment where people feel, okay, well, I'm, I'm looked after here and people care about me, so I'm going to also care about my work and I'll do the best I can. And if everyone does that, you multiply that up, you get an organisation that's functioning and performing very well. So I saw an opportunity to play to my strengths within the organisation. I suppose it's the short answer to your question. Oh, that's wonderful. So staying with the EcoSurety's work, unpack a little more about how this works. So, so a brand comes to you, they have a certain obligation of, as you called it, PRN. And uh, then it doesn't matter uh, what is being recycled. They can just buy uh, that quantum. Say they've used uh, 100 tons of packaging. And if they buy 100 tons, if somebody is recycling 100 tons somewhere and they buy those credits, then they are kosher. Is that is that how it works? Yes. So it's a bit like an offset scheme. It's like carbon offset. So, so Coca-Cola can buy evidence of recycling of Pepsi cans, as it were. So they don't have to be Coke cans that have been recycled. It literally could be 
Pepsi cans that have been recycled, but Coke buys that evidence and therefore they've met their regulatory obligation requirements. Um, and because everyone does that, then over the whole year, over all of the volume of packaging that gets in the market, the cost of all of that recycling gets covered by all of the brands. Um, but yes, so you don't, if you're Nestle, uh, you don't have to, you're not paying for the recycling of Nestle cardboard boxes. Uh, you're paying for recycling of cardboard boxes, as you said exactly. So the, the equivalent tonnage uh, is, the, is the sort of technical term. So it's the, it's the equivalent tonnage of packaging by material across these six materials, which are in the UK, are paper, glass, aluminium, steel, plastic and wood. So the wood, in the, so it's all the packaging that surrounds a product. So you think that the wood is the wooden pallet in the warehouse, the plastic might be the plastic shrink film around the pallet, the cardboard box, and inside the cardboard box there might be an aluminium can wrapped in a cardboard sleeve with a paper label on the top. So all of that packaging by weight needs to be recycled. And we do the calculations, um, so we go to brands. My team were at... Um, uh, a brand that does candles the other day so they had to go and unwrap the candles and the boxes that the candles sit in and weigh everything so we make sure that we have an accurate weight for the packaging uh, and then you multiply that up by the number of units they've sold over a year and then that becomes the obligation again i can get into technical detail and bore you and your listeners to tears with this which i won't do <laughs> but i'm you know it, it's a very technical Technical we, we are quite geeky, role, right? so right. go ahead. You know, <laughs> you yeah. can you can give us a little more into the technicality of it. Maybe not to the extent <laughs> that gets into the absolute nitty gritty, but yeah, give us give us more insight into how it how it, the scheme works. So you know, so we will calculate for a, a brand that sells packaged food and drink. So let's say in a, in a UK grocery supermarket, the weight of product that they have sold in the market in the previous year. So the way it works is your obligation. We're now in 2023. So the obligation, what you have to pay for recycling evidence in 2023 is based on the, the tonnage of packaging that you placed on the market last year in 2022. So by the 15th of April 2023, you have to submit to the Environment Agency through EcoSurity or one of our competitors, how many tons of each packaging material was placed on the market in the full year January to December 2022. Um, and then once that's been submitted on the 15th of April 2023, that's then your obligation locked. Uh, and then you've got between the 15th of April and the 31st of December to buy recycling evidence from the recyclers. Um, and we'll go to, you know, plastic recycler or a glass recycler and we'll do deals and buy evidence of recycling from them. Um, we try to make sure that where we can that the recycling takes place in the UK because we don't believe that we should offshore the recycling obligations of, of the UK. So, you know, why should Turkey or China or India or Poland or wherever take our rubbish effectively and, and recycle it? We should be able to deal with our waste within the UK. The UK infrastructure, the capacity for recycling all of our packaging waste doesn't exist yet across all materials. Some materials are better than others. Glass, for example, there's really good glass recycling capacity in the UK. Um, aluminium, for example, a lot of aluminium gets recycled in Germany. Paper still has to, some of the paper still has to go overseas. Plastic increasingly is being recycled in the UK. And that's a good example of how the PRN system does work. 
because the value, the inherent value in the material and these PRNs, the value of the PRNs, has been quite high for a number of years. So that has incentivized recyclers to invest in new recycling lines, new recycling infrastructure for plastic in the UK. Uh, and we as EcoSurity have also helped some of our brands divert money directly into specific recyclers to buy a second line or a wash plant or whatever so that they can invest in increasing the, the UK recycling infrastructure. Um, so, you know, my, my ideal scenario would be for all of the packaging of all of our brands to be recycled solely in the UK because that is a lower carbon footprint solution than sending it abroad to be recycled. I mean, there are some examples that are bizarre, really, where, and I'm going slightly off tangent here, where uh, mixed recycling will go across to Poland, say, and get sorted there into aluminium cardboard and then sent back to the UK for recycling in a single stream. So you imagine the just the resource associated with that and the carbon associated with sending it abroad to be sorted and then sent back to the UK. Surely this is not beyond the wit of man for us to find a more resource efficient way of doing that. Yeah, and I totally hear you. And I think it's so smart to kind of attach economic incentives around the whole scheme because that automatically balances the market like you're saying that you know there is recyclers are the hot commodity then you know you will look out for every recycler and go and tell them guys you can earn this much more through this prn uh, kind of scheme and that's an automatic incentive for them to do more to increase their capacity etc etc one thing i wanted to ask you as you were mentioning the different lines of products because say in particular of course we coming from the whole packaging spectrum, especially around plastics, um, because there's no such thing as plastic, right? There's so many different varieties and within that and multi-layered. What happens if as a brand, I'm using a multi-layered substrate, like a potato chip bag or something that will not be recycled? How does that obligation work? I'm glad you asked that question. Um, so a multi-layer laminate, a multi-layer plastic film, for example, is much harder to recycle. And at the moment in the UK, uh, in most local councils, it doesn't get collected um, from curbside. So what we have done at EcoSurity is we've, we've created something called a, um, a voluntary EPR scheme, so a voluntary extended producer responsibility. So voluntary means that it's not, it's not mandated and in the regulations, so brands don't have to look after. So you mentioned crisp packets, um, Walker's crisps, multi-layer plastic bag, or it's not plastic, actually, it's it's plastic and aluminium, aluminium foil, plastic, uh, multi-layer laminated bag. That currently doesn't, can't be recycled normally from curbside. So what we've created and what PepsiCo have contributed to, PepsiCo being the owner of Walker's Crisps, um, is this voluntary EPR scheme that we run called the Flexible Plastics Fund. So it's a voluntary fund. The brands have all put money into it. So, and this is in the public d domain, so I'm not giving away any secrets here. So. Nestle, Mars, PepsiCo, uh, Mondelez, you know, to name a few, lots of brands have put money in a pot. We run that pot for them. Um, so we run the, the, the Flexible Plastic Fund recycling scheme for those brands. And that fund is used to then um, collect and recycle those flexible plastics. Um, so we're doing it from supermarkets to a small extent. Um, and to a larger extent, we're running pilots in local authorities. So 
again, in England, in the UK, and I'm conscious that this podcast may go out internationally, um, but for, the, for a UK audience, um, there are certain local authorities, so uh, North Somerset, South Gloucestershire, Cheltenham, etc. Um, you can collect, uh, the, those councils do collect flexible plastics and multi-layer laminated film from curbside, um, and that re the recycling of those materials and the segregation of that material for recycling is paid for by the EcoSurety Flexible Plastic Fund, which is funded by the brands, Mondelez, PepsiCo, etc. So that's an example of how voluntary EPR um, can ensure that there is a financial incentive for, for the recyclers to recycle these traditionally difficult to recycle materials. Interestingly, uh, under the new regulations that have been announced by the government in the UK recently, by 2027, I think it's March 2027, all local authorities will have to um, have, have, uh, have implemented a, uh, a scheme to collect flex multi-layer flexible plastic film from people's households. No, that's wonderful. And uh, just to just to get into uh, more understanding and from even a personal perspective, uh, when you say recycled, uh, is it really recycled or it will be converted to something else? In, in this case, the term downcycled, because ultimately yeah. okay. it, for, for a consumer, what happens is that when you say recycle, we feel that, you know, a, a, a polyethylene bottle will become a polyethylene bottle, whereas it may actually end up becoming yeah. a fiber or something like that, go into a pillow. Yeah. And the same thing uh, with, uh, especially in case of flexible films, what does it actually convert into? Because I'm told that it's really difficult to even downcycle because because you can't separate the layers. So so what does it actually convert into? And does that have economic benefit or it's only because you guys have this fund that somebody can think about at least collecting and using it? In some cases, and I would say as we sit here today, in the majority of cases, it is downcycled. So it's not it's not recycled. It's not a crisp packet becoming another crisp packet, or a you know a a, a lid off a yogurt pot becoming another lid on another yogurt pot. Um, in most cases, it is downcycled um, because it is still commingled, uh, mixed flexible plastics. Some of it's polyethylene, polypropylene dual layer some of it has an aluminium foil in it some of it doesn't etc so in most cases it is still recycled having said that sorry downcycled having said that um, there is increasingly sophisticated technology to separate the materials and separate the layers so that you get a clean stream of polyethylene polypropylene etc and then that then the um, it is more likely to end up being sort of film to film and for it to go maybe even food grade film to food grade film because food grade um, materials, food grade packaging has to reach, has to uh, meet more stringent requirements than non-food grade plastic. So quite often what will happen is it'll be food grade material um, into the packaging and then that'll get downcycled into non-food grade. So it might be a uh, I don't know, a plastic sleeve for some pens or, uh, you know, non-food products. Um, in terms of the second part of your question, which is what does it actually get recycled into? Most of it becomes bin bags. Um, so, you know, bin liners that go in trash. If you, for, the, for your American audience, trash cans, liners, bin liners for, for, uh, for refuse sacks. So a lot of, a lot of flexible plastic... Uh, ends up being 
bin bags to collect refuse. It's It's got to come from somewhere, so something has to be the raw material for making bin bags. So it's better that it's um, crisp packets and yogurt pots, uh, lids, than using virgin oil, uh, you know, virgin plastics and, and using uh, oil to produce virgin plastics to produce packaging for bin liners. So, um, so technically you're right, it is downcycling. Um, and that's what most of the flexible plastic in the UK today gets recycled into. Uh, having said that, over time, a, an increasing percentage of it will be film to film and will be food grade packaging. And interestingly, chemical recycling has a role here um, where you can take a long chain polymer and break it down into its constituent monomers and then put them back together again as a polymer. But uh, there will always be a small percentage that will be downcycled. So, so I suppose the process of recycling inherently has an element of wastage in it. Uh, and then you end up with some stuff at the end that is not recyclable or, you, or you know, becomes a, a park bench or insulation for a wall in a building. Yeah, and, and I just uh, think that ultimately, you know, you can do that. People say that, okay, it'll be six cycles, seven cycles. Who really knows, you know, how many cycles has a product really been through? And then ultimately there has to be an out because, yeah. because I guess at some stage, what happens to the bin liner, you know, does that also continue yeah. in the loop eventually, or does that have to have an out and what is that out? And, and, and you're right about, you know, it could maybe become a more permanent structure, like a park bench. And that's great. You know, like that's going to last a long, long time. That's not single use anymore. Uh, we are putting our bums on it for a long, long time. So, yeah. so you know, so yeah. I, I would just like you to address with your vast, vast knowledge in the domain. Ultimately, there is a certain out that has to happen. And how do you see that evolving over time? A lot of the out, as you call it, uh, ends up in in the construction industry. So it does. It ends up there are there are like plastic bricks. So you can build houses with plastic bricks made from recycled plastic. A lot of fiberboard sort of replacement, so construction material that can be used either for insulation or actually, you know, for the walls of buildings. Again, I'm not a I'm not an engineer, I'm not a construction specialist, but I know that there it ends up as a raw material used in the construction industry quite often. And also what's termed as street furniture, which was a new term to me a few years ago. So things like bins and, and bike, you know, when you if you're cycling in a city and you you lock your bicycle to one of these stands, for example, um, or if you're entering a, a neighbourhood and you've got the uh, signs, you know, the you know, welcome to welcome to my town or my village, and there's a sign there. A lot of that sort of street furniture, as it's called, as it's called, can be can use recycled content, recycled plastic to be made of that. So, they, so like a fence, maybe a fence that looks like it's a wooden fence, but actually it's made of recycled plastic. Uh, and again, as you say, a park bench will sit there for, for many years. Uh, a, a plastic fence welcoming you to, you know, to the entrance to a town or a village can look like wood, but is made of plastic and therefore it's more durable because the rain won't wash it away. Yeah, and, and you've effectively, you've sort of, <laughs> you could argue that's a ca carbon capture and storage because you've captured that hydrocarbon in this plastic thing and it's there for 20, 30 years. So hopefully we will find ways of making sure that, that as we sort of downcycle and downcycle and downcycle that 
at the end of life, it's had quite a lot of use. And at the very end of life, it'll probably get burnt, but you do some uh, energy recovery. So when it's burnt, you recover that energy and you use it, you know. Or, or chemical recycling can then come in and, and those polymers can be broken down and you can create fuel to power a factory instead of using virgin hydrocarbon fuel. So you've got a deep insight into this domain and UK seems to be taking some logical kind of steps in, in a certain direction. And clearly there's deep thought happening there. Do you see a time when there will be no plastics going to landfill, at least in UK? You know, they'll end up somewhere, you know. Yeah, it could be the fences or the benches or incineration or whatever it is. But there's nothing that ends up in a landfill. Do you see a, that future? And how far do you think that future is? Yes, I do see that future. I think that future is 2030, so it's not that far away. So within, you know, within That's the really next close. Yeah. six, six like years, six, yeah, years. six yeah. years, there will be, I think there will be a total ban on waste to landfill. And again, it's where economics can drive behavior because effectively the government can mandate that the, the waste to landfill fee uh, is so high that you think, well, I don't want to put something in landfill because it's going to cost me a fortune, so why should I do that? Uh, there must be a better way. Uh, and therefore, you know, energy from waste is the last resort uh, where, you know, if you can't do anything else with it, then at least you you burn it and you recover the energy from it or, or you depolymerize it and make it into a, um, a new fuel. But there will be a ban on any waste to landfill uh, I anticipate by 2030 in the UK. That's pretty close, and that gives gives us, us a lot of hope. Absolutely, governments change <laughs> and politicians change. So the caveat, the caveat is that you know a new government could come in and they could change all of this. But, yeah, yeah, but yeah. that's the current path that we're <laughs> heading on.
Well, that's wonderful. Well, hopefully, the wonderful part is that, you know, that hopefully it continues uh, in the trajectory it is. So two things I want to, again, uh, keep with the tra- trajectory for our learning when it comes to the uh, polymers uh, that, that, that are majorly used. Uh, two of the subjects, and one of them you uh, kind of inferred to in the beginning uh, when you were talking about the work that you're doing. Uh, the first one is the input material. There's always a challenge with, like you said, fossil fuels. Ultimately, most uh, petroleum-based plastics are coming from a resource which is finite. And how do you see that? And how do when I say you, I mean how do the brands see that? Because ultimately, that's what uh, you're working with as well. And the second thing which you inferred to was the process, because ultimately, many times we we as consumers don't think about the process. And even even from the domain I come from, sometimes pulp and paper is using up so much water and so much energy. Uh, and uh, and we are not t- talking about that. And all we talk about is kind of, is it recycled? So, but even the recycling is taking a lot of uh, energy. So how do you look at input materials and how do you look at process? Or is that not something that the customers are dabbling with right now? No, it's something that is a very hot topic with all our clients. Um, <clears throat> and they are very interested in uh, in sort of taking steps forward. So step one is to make sure that you're using recycled content in your in your packaging. So more and more recycled content. The the I won't say the holy grail because you can go beyond that, but but trying to get to a hundred percent recycled content. So your packaging is made from 100% recycled content is sort of step one. And in parallel with that, making sure that it's, that it's recyclable. So if you can say my, you know, my can or my box or my cardboard, my whatever, whatever the, the vessel is, the packaging material is 100% recycled content and 100% recyclable, then that's sort of step one. Step two is then to, as I alluded earlier, is, you know, which, which products within our portfolio can we remove packaging from and eliminate the packaging altogether? So, you know, where, where do we really need packaging and where do we not need packaging? So in some some products, for example, non-perishable products or dry goods, etc., it's much easier to think of a, a refill or a reuse system. Uh, and there's a debate going on about whether you have sort of refill or pre-fill. And the distinction between refill and pre-fill is refill is where you go along with your empty container and you fill it, that's refill. Pre-fill is where it's it's pre-filled and you buy it and it's already got the stuff in it. And then you take it away, you consume it and you bring it back to be re- to be pre-filled again. But as a consumer walking into the shop, you're buying something that is already filled for you. So that's the pre-fill model versus refill as you go in with your empty container. So, so step one on the journey is recycled content and fully recyclable. Um, step two is how do I eliminate my packaging altogether? as much as possible and move to refill and reuse alternatives. Step three, I suppose, or you know, again, these things don't have to be sequential. They can all operate in parallel across different categories and different products, uh, is going beyond just the packaging element and the carbon impact, but starting to think, you mentioned water, you know, what's the water impact, what's the biodiversity impact and what's the social impact? So can we find a measure and maybe, you know, over time, find some sort of traffic light system on the product so you can see okay i'm buying this jar of mayonnaise 
what's the water impact, what's the CO2 impact, what's the biodiversity impact, and what's the social impact of this product. And if it's like green, 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 happy, or it might be, you know, two greens, one amber and a red, versus another product that's got four reds. And you think, okay, well, I'm not gonna buy the one that's four reds, because that uses up lots of water, it has high CO2 emissions, damages biodiversity and has a negative social impact. I'll steer clear of that product and I'll go and find another one that is produced in a more ethical way. And I suppose it's about us understanding as, as you know, the industry, the brands and people who help the brands as to kind of what are those measures and, and what's the scale? You know, what what's good, what's good and bad? And, and how do you get a green tick versus a red tick or a red cross? And then how do you make sure that these things probably initially start on a voluntary basis where kind of the cool startup brands, you know, start to do this stuff. Um, but then ideally over time, you want that to become mainstream, possibly on a voluntary basis initially, then it becomes mandated by government where you just have to do that. Otherwise, you can't sell, you know, and I'm confident that we will get there, you know, eventually, eventually, eventually it'll happen. The challenge for us is how can we speed it up? How can we, as people who are interested in circular economy principles, biodiversity, carbon footprint, etc., uh, and want to behave responsibly and ethically, accelerate that process and start to do good stuff more quickly, really, is the, is the dream. One of the things, and I know EcoSurety may not be tackling this, but how do you see uh, the, the domain of compostables or compostable packaging. And does is that something that you are buoyant about or you think that that is a passing phase and it, 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 that's not something that will work? And in particular, let's, let's tackle something like food packaging uh, where there is food and food waste and, uh, and, and compostable packaging. What, is, what are your insights in that domain? Compostable is really interesting because a lot of challenger brands, you know, ethical brands, whatever you want to call them, you know, new startups in the recent years have come up with compostable packaging and have said, you know, this is great packaging, plastic free, 100% compostable, 100% biodegradable, etc. And there is no clear definition of what is compostable, what is biodegradable. Does compostable mean home compostable or compostable in an industrial composter? Very different. Most people, the average consumer, and again, I worked in marketing for a long time, so I think as a consumer, you know, the, the consumer buying something off the shelf in Tesco, when you say to them compostable, they think, ah, it means I can put this in my garden with my, with my uh, garden waste and my, when I mow the lawn, the grass cuttings, and within a couple of weeks, it'll have broken down and it'll be mud. That's kind of the true definition, I suppose, of compostable. And a lot of packaging that claims to be compostable doesn't decompose in a, in a situation, uh, in a home composting situation. That's one problem. The second problem is the infrastructure doesn't exist in many countries, UK being one of them, where I'll use myself as an example. I have nowhere to compost my, my waste at, at home with my local authority. So my local authority will come around and they'll take my garbage and they'll take the glass, they'll take the plastic, they'll take the paper, but they won't take food waste. Now, food waste will be collected from homes, I think in 2026, that'll be mandated by government. Uh, I might have got that wrong because they keep changing their mind when the, when the deadline is, it might be 2027. But let's assume it's March 26, which I think is the latest uh, news I heard. 
They will take food waste. What's not clear yet is whether compostable packaging is allowed in that food waste or not. So sometimes consumers will do what they think is the right thing, which is they've got a compostable coffee cup or a compostable you know, food wrapper, a uh, piece of packaging that says compostable or biodegradable, and they'll put it in with their food waste or with their garden waste. By the time it gets to the local authority, it'll get picked out because it's seen as packaging and it'll end up in landfill. Um, and in landfill, it won't decompose because the conditions in landfill are typically quite anaerobic and it won't, it'll stay there, you know, as compostable packaging in landfill forever. And that's not, that's not the intended end result for that packaging. So what you need before compostable packaging can become mainstream is you need the infrastructure, i.e. the collection and, and recycling you know, infrastructure. And it has to be done in collaboration with local authorities that collect rubbish from people's homes or recycling from people's homes. So compostable is really interesting. Under current regulations uh, in the UK, compostable packaging will, will be penalised in the new EPR system, the Extended Producer Responsibility System, which kicks in in 2025 in terms of costs. So if you are a brand, you know, Ved Krishna brand, and you're producing potato chips uh, and putting them in a compostable bag, you will pay more for that, for that bag as a producer of the packaging than someone who's putting it in a plastic box because that compostable packaging is deemed unrecyclable because currently the infrastructure doesn't exist to recycle that packaging. Um, there's a broader perspective or a broader perspective on compostable packaging is, is that a good use of resources per se? Is it good to produce packaging that is compostable and ends up in the ground uh, decomposing? And is it actually nutritious? So is that providing nutrition to the soil? And I think for me, the answer is, if it's improving the, the, uh, the quality of the soil and it's providing nutrition to the soil, then composting is, composting is probably good. If it's degrading soil quality, then compostable packaging is probably bad. But the, the short answer to your question is, it's not clear, it's not as clear cut as you might think, and the jury is out, uh, and it's, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting area. And just adding on to that, and of course, you're totally right, you know, if it ends up being in a landfill, it's probably going to, at some point, even if it decomposes, it's becoming methane, which is which is way worse. You know, you don't want methane to be uh, to be going into the the the, the sky. Uh, but I see like two broad substrates when I come to, when it comes to compostables. One is a biopolymer; it could be derived from whatever starch or um, uh, seaweed or what have you. And uh, then there is the cellulose-based, which is paper plus. Uh, so, so of course, paper plus, I am relatively aware that, yes, it could also be recycled. It can be put in the paper stream and uh, whatever layers they have in terms of barriers should be able to get recycled in a paper stream. And, and, and I put should with a disclaimer because there's, again, multiple facets to that. But assuming that, uh, what happens in case of bioplastics? Would you have an insight that if the bioplastics were put in a plastic stream, uh, would that still get downcycled along with the rest? Do you have insights in that? It would get ejected. So bioplastics currently won't end up in the plastic recycling stream. The, 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 the plastic recycling systems and most plastic recyclers see bioplastics as a contaminant. Um, so if it's a yeah, biopolymers, they will 
the recycler will try and take it out of the system, out of the stream, and send it to landfill or incineration or whatever. Yeah, but I think that's, that's a sort huge of challenge. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think if you know if it's a bioplastic or a bio bio based packaging, whether it's seaweed, sugarcane pulp, or mushroom or whatever it is. Um, if it's going to decompose and end up being soil or in the soil, then it's back to my sort of previous statement around if it's enhancing soil quality and it's nutritious for the soil, then that's good. If it isn't, if it's, if it's degrading soil quality, then that's not so good. On the cellulose stuff, yeah, if it does end up being in recycled paper, then that's good. And again, we need to understand also the, the other aspects we talked about, which is What's the water consumption required for all of this process? And is that efficient? What's the CO2 emissions of the lifetime CO2 emissions? Is there a negative biodiversity impact? And, you know, is there any social impact that we should be thinking about as well? So it's a much bigger topic. Oh, and, and you're right. And if, if uh, ultimately, if it is separated and goes into a landfill it's an absolute uh, this and you're right if nobody there'll be very few people who are actually going to home compost and especially if you're in a big city it's kind of difficult to manage that and you have to have the enthusiasm to be able to do that it takes a little effort and uh, and and you're right even when i home compost but even me i don't put a bioplastic in my home compost because the rate of degradation is totally different from my food waste so, so you know it's going to my food waste is going to have to wait for the bioplastic which is home compostable uh, even paper for that matter uh, if i put it in the pile uh, apart from molded fiber that's worked well especially if i tear it down into small bits then it works well uh, but uh, but if I have to put a whole paper into my food pile as home compost, it's going to be rate of degradation is totally different, which creates a big challenge for a composting site, and uh, and hence their reluctance to accept, you know, different packaging waste along with the food waste or garden waste because because for them it's a big challenge, uh, and uh, and again latching on to your idea that people are not going to be able to home compost in mass so there has to be enough sites before you start pushing out compostable packaging and the separation of those have to take place and the consumer has to know that now there is one more bin <laughs> it was bad enough with the uh, dry and wet and plastic and aluminum and glass and now there is a bioplastics of that again so it's a, it's a complex challenge as you say yeah, and I think you need to make it easy for consumers. You know, consumers have busy lives. They've got lots of things going on. You know, we, you and I might think about recycling and waste, etc. But the average person has got to, you know, get their kids off to school and go to work and do all sorts of things. And, you know, recycling their waste isn't their top priority. So how do you make it easy for them? And I think that sort of um, mixed recycling containers so people can just put food waste, garden waste together, off it goes and it gets taken care of by the local authority. You know, mix your cardboard with your aluminium, with your plastic, that goes off. It's up to the local authority to separate those waste streams and to separate the multi-layer films and do all that stuff so that it can be recycled. Um, and yeah, we, we need to make it as simple as possible for consumers. And we also need to educate brands 
to not use complicated packaging. So, you know, use, use simple packaging that can then flow easily through the recycling stream. Um, so don't use a multi-layer laminate with, you know, plastic, cardboard, <laughs> aluminium, multi-layers all squished together because that makes it very hard. On the, on the customer side now, just like switching to, to the other end, uh, and you mentioned this in terms of the cost and the actual cost being different, but we all operate in a certain market-driven economics. And if I look at uh, the customer, who is the producer and the disseminator of a, of a package, um, they, don't, they don't exist in isolation. So, so how will this movement work? I presume there is something to do with regulation and everybody following the regulation. Because if I'm a producer of a crisp bag, and so are you, uh, if we both change our packaging at the same time, then we are at the, in the same situation when it comes to our costing. Otherwise, I'm always waiting. You know, like uh, I'm, I'm going to have to compete with my whoever whoever is selling the other crisp uh, bags uh, so how do you see that mindset shift because i understand the whole idea of cost being um, you know very isolated not looking at the entire life cycle but that's the world we operate in and, and how do you see that mentality shifting when it comes to who's going to be first who's going to be first to accept a higher cost of packaging i guess it's a difficult one and economics play a big role here uh, and I suppose you, you probably have, you need to think as a producer about value rather than cost um, so how can I add value how can I add the most value to my product and how do I um, premiumize my product so that it is perceived by consumers to be worth that value uh, and therefore rather than sort of spiraling down to lowest cost producer, minimizing the value, how do you actually maximize the value and demonstrate to consumers that, okay, my crisp packet, you know, Ved Krishna crisps might cost 2p more than my competitor, but they're much, they're much better. Not only do the potato, the potato is fresher, they're locally sourced, and you know, beautiful seasoning, but they're also put in a, in a, in a, in a packaging format that is best in class, protects the packaging so your crisps are crunchy and fresh uh, but also the packaging has a low carbon footprint and it uses less water blah 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 so really it's about what's the value and how do you how what's the value proposition you're offering your consumer and how do you educate them um, to understand that so they're making informed choices and I you know I, I have faith in humanity and I think if you tell consumers a story and you explain the value that you're offering them and why this product is worth more because it's better, people will come along with you. Uh, and I think over time, lots of categories have kind of premiumized and, and improved their offering. And people have understood that, you know, a better product is worth paying more for. There will always be a market for and a group of, you know, a segment of the market, which is just, I don't care about any of that. I just want the cheapest price. And... There will be some people who, again, don't care about any of that. They just want the cheapest price. And the answer to that is you make you make the brands have to meet a certain standard, a minimum standard of packaging format that is acceptable. Uh, and you don't allow them to, you know, to... Yeah, you make it illegal, basically, <laughs> to produce packaging formats that are environmentally damaging. 
that's kind of yeah again it's that role the interplay between the role of government and, and legislation uh, and negotiating with business so that business behaves responsibly and doesn't you know again if I think about other industries clothing manufacturing etc you know you can't allow businesses to pollute rivers and and pollute the atmosphere and uh, you know so it's yeah it's it's about how how does regulation and government ensure that businesses have to have to meet a minimum standard in terms of their behavior and the whether it's the raw materials that go into the the products or the packaging that goes into the products or the wages they pay their staff you know it's all kind of it's it's back to that kind of uh behaving ethically behaving responsibly and uh, and doing you know not just your bit for the planet but but yeah, I suppose behaving responsibly is probably the catch-all phrase. I see what you're saying, and I, I can see examples of that. Even in UK, I think I, I probably will mess up the pronunciation, but there was a brand called Tyrell, yep. I think T-Y-R-E-L-L, yeah. with chips, yep. uh, crisps. Yep. And and then they were, they were definitely higher priced, but then the quality was totally different. And of course, the consumers wanted that. And, and I see your point, you know, like... and. I actually think it's really wise for businesses to look at the value they are offering the consumer rather than be on that downward spiral of cost because that leads nowhere in the end. Um, and and just a couple of questions before we kind of go towards wrapping up. I'm seeing the time here. Um, so uh, so I've also noticed that when we are uh, in a conducive regulatory environment the speed of change also hastens. If, if you have a clear government saying that this is something that is mandatory, there is a high chance that innovation would also gather speed. Are you seeing that in different ways in terms of the packaging evolution uh, that people, because they realize that this is, this, is the, this is the call of the hour and there is no escape, uh, that they are actually rushing to create better packaging, maybe more monolayers, maybe shift to substances which are uh, better is that a change that you are noticing and what are the few maybe examples that you're most excited about in terms of change because of the regulatory environment good question i'm very excited about the way packaging is moving uh, as someone who's been working in fast moving consumer goods brands for almost 30 years now so i started <laughs> working for unilever in 1992 uh, and i was you know packaging format that was most familiar to me then was a, a cardboard box which was the the home of washing powder so I, I was selling Omo washing powder Omo and Surf uh, and they were in cardboard boxes so I was designing packaging cardboard boxes to, to hold washing powder and therefore it needed some sort of barrier property so that you didn't get moisture in the powder because if you do it kicks up and it becomes clumpy um, so you know my my packaging experience I suppose in and interacting with packaging as a brand manager goes back a long way and it's really exciting i attended the packaging innovation summit and i think you were there Ved, because we we met and chatted in in one of the breakouts and you might have been on stage talking about packer um you know i i was very excited to see all the seaweed packaging brands there you know i'd never heard of seaweed packaging um so you've got not pla and other brands out there you know producing an entirely new packaging format which is based on seaweed uh, and interestingly I'm, and I'm having a conversation next week I think with someone from the world the World Wildlife Fund the WWF 
on the biodiversity impact of seaweed packaging. And if seaweed packaging was to grow and replace plastic packaging or cardboard packaging at scale, what would how much seaweed would need to be grown in the oceans to provide all that raw material? And what would be the biodiversity impact of that? Would that be good or bad? Would it, would it lead to seaweed farming taking off? And is that a good thing for fish or a bad thing for fish? I don't know. The WWF will tell me in a few in a few days' time. So I'm personally excited by the fact that a lot of innovation has been sparked by the need to to create more sustainable packaging formats. And people are thinking about mushroom packaging, seaweed packaging, sugarcane pulp packaging, you know, and all sorts of other things that I'm sure will emerge in the future. Um, so, you know, anything that creates competition and innovation is good, uh, you know, because it makes people think and it makes people just try and, you know, it helps smart people or it incentivizes smart people to find clever solutions to pre-existing problems. That's what innovation is about, and yeah. I, I'm I'm excited by that. Well, I agree with you, and I've seen if a country takes proactive measures, even if they are tough in a certain direction, the speed of change totally shifts. I I, I remember at one point there was a rumor of plastic being banned in India, and everywhere I went, I saw Indian entrepreneurs <laughs> trying to find that next thing. And as soon yeah. as that didn't happen at that stage, it happened eventually. Uh, it just went kaput after that. You know, yeah. nobody <laughs> was visible anymore because people do operate faster under pressure. So, so I agree with you. There's a lot of exciting, interesting substrates out there, um, and and I hope that that will bring the change that you you and I are both uh, trying to work towards. Um, going towards uh, closure. And just just building on that point, interestingly, yeah, please, interestingly, please, just building please. on that, the the UK government. Uh, was going to charge brands what's called EPR fees, extended producer responsibility fees, next year in 2024. But the system wasn't quite ready, so it delayed that to 2025. So from a data reporting point of view, all the data has to be reported in 2024, um, but the costs will hit in 2025. And the good thing about that is it gives brands more time to prepare themselves for this future cost hike in 2025. And therefore, they've got another year to figure out, OK, how can I make better decisions um, to avoid these future costs? Um, and therefore, how can I find better solutions, more environmentally sustainable, more recyclable solutions? And how can I even in some cases, as I've said earlier, move away from packaging altogether and find refill and reuse alternatives so that I'm not hit by this cost? So this the, the, it's the carrot and stick, isn't it? You know, the, the regulatory stick is the thing you're trying to avoid. Um, so how do I, you know, innovate in in, in this space and, and be creative so that I don't incur these costs? Superb. And now I'm going to go towards the question that I've been waiting for. <laughs> because this is this is going to encapsulate all your knowledge from a brand perspective from a perspective of an evangelist, from a perspective of somebody who understands policy and somebody who started to understand materials in, in different complexities, as you brought out during our conversation. Uh, if you were the Minister of Environment for UK and you were to make the policy that would transform the landscape, uh, and of course, policy is complex, so we can't get into the entire policy, but if you were to 
if you were to give us a general direction on what that ideal policy uh, would look like for UK in particular, because that's where you're most invested, uh, that would make maximum impact and make your life truly um, something that you would be proud of uh, having created. So you are the minister. You have to decide the policy. The whole parliament is with you. And what would that policy look like? Wow, that's a that's a biggie. That's a big responsibility on my shoulders now, Ved. <laughs> uh, I would do a few things, I think. Um, one is I would increase the penalty for uh, using non-recycled packaging. Uh, or so, so non-recycled content in my packaging, i.e. virgin uh, hydrocarbon packaging in particular, um, but, but virgin materials in, in general. So if I spin it the other way around, I would increase the incentive rather than... So you know, on the one hand, increase the penalty for fully non-recycled content packaging. On the other hand, increase the, the carrot, the incentive for brands to use more recycled content. Um, I would also uh, increase the penalty for single-use packaging. Uh, and then conversely, the other, the flip side of the coin is to incentivize reuse and refill. So if you're, if you're again, using the, the Ved Krishna crisps example, uh, if your crisp brand is, is using some sort of refill reuse mechanism, then I would give you an incentive and a tax break to encourage you to do more of that and less of the single use. Uh, I would find a solution for compostables because I think it's ridiculous, to be honest, that compostable packaging just ends up in landfill and you know creates methane, as, as you said, which is six times worse than CO2 for in terms of its uh, ozone, you know, its uh, greenhouse gas impact. Um, so I would solve compostables and, and find a way of, you know, making, providing clarity on uh, compostable packaging. Um, I would insist on CO2 labeling. So the CO2 impact of products is, is there. So you've got a carbon measure and so that, and also probably use a traffic light system. So people, you know, cause if I tell you your packet of crisps has got 272 grams of carbon, what does that mean? Is that good or bad? So kind of, there needs to be some sort of simple smiley face, frowny face or, or red, amber, green, easy traffic light system so people know what's good or, what's or the entire color is different for a packaging material <laughs> that would be in your face yeah, it's a red. Yeah, exactly red bag <laughs> <laughs> um the uh the tomato marketing board might have a problem with that <laughs> um and then and refill we talked about refill and reuse then i might be even more ambitious and start to introduce um Again, new incentives. Again, incentives and penalties work hand in hand. So incentivize uh, products and packaging. Again, if I'm the environment minister, I've got, I've got free reign, haven't I, as environment minister? I don't need to think just about packaging. I can think about the product in total. So I would make sure for a, for a product, for your Fed Krishna product, not just the packaging, but the whole thing and the potato chips inside, the crisps, uh, that the the social impact and the biodiversity impact is also recognised in some way, so that uh, there is a way of making sure that if your business is ethical and you treat your employees well and you pay them the living wage, 
and the social impact in the local community where you operate your business, you're doing good and you're planting trees and you've got good biodiversity and all of your packaging is, you know, 100% recycled content, 100% recyclable, and you're doing all sorts of innovative things in the reuse refill space that I'm giving you lots of tax breaks and incentives. And if you're the company next door that isn't doing that, then I penalize you and I, I come down heavily on you in terms of taxes to incentivize you to behave like like Ved Krishna crisps next door. So that's that's what I would do as Minister of the Environment. You've clearly thought about this, whether as a minister or as a person, but that's a pretty extensive list. I hope, I don't know how many listeners we have from the government side, but I hope that there is somebody listening and maybe the next government might reach out to you, Will, that that may be your next job. I hope. <laughs> because you no, I'm quite happy. I'm quite happy. Uh, I'm happy in the private <laughs> sector. I think government is too complicated. <laughs> Great. That takes me to my final question, uh, which is, of course, always a pleasure to hear. What does good garbage mean to you? Oh, good garbage to me means no garbage. For, for me, good garbage is no such thing as waste. Is you know everything is used. So um, you know a full circular model where nothing goes to waste, everything gets reused in some form, uh, and ends up being something else. Um, so, uh, yeah, a, a recycle and refill, sorry, a reuse and refill model where the word waste and garbage doesn't exist. They're simply resources. They are valuable resources. And we as people value them. And there is money associated with this resource and I can go and sell it and someone else can go and do something with it. Which interestingly is how it is in, you know, I grew up in Egypt. You, you've got experience of India, you know, resources have value and people go and collect these resources and do something with them, you know? Nothing goes to waste. Absolutely, no. Thank you, that's so well put. This has been such an enlightening conversation, Will. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for the work that you're doing in terms of really, it's not just about making people meet the norms, it's more than that. It's it's about letting people know what is good and what is not and how how things are evolving and you clearly very, 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 very aware of what is happening and how things need to change. And I'm particularly uh, impressed by your long list or, 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 or actually it's not a long list. It's a, it's a concise it's list. Four or five right? bullet points. But yeah. a very focused <laughs> list of what, what should be. So but thank you for taking the time. Thank you for being on the show and thank you for the work that you're doing. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Good Garbage Podcast. Follow us on social media to never miss an episode. Links are in the description below. I'm your host, Ved Krishna. See you next time.